The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. Sexual harassment, by definition, is really, it's, it's just workplace harassment with a sexual element. So when I define sexual harassment to clients in, in my talks, I say, you know, sexual harassment is uninvited, unwelcomed, unreciprocated behavior of a sexual nature which intimidates, offends or humiliates. That link to anti-discrimination legislation, there's two of them. The person is offended on the basis of gender, which is a protected attribute. But in every state and territory in Australia, we now have standalone sex discrimination legislation, which amongst other things, makes sexually based conduct in the workplace that causes offence a breach of that form of legislation. I'm often asked, is there a point where sexual harassment could by definition become criminal. Yes, yes, there is. So welcome everyone to episode 24 of the Good Investing Podcast. My name is Matt McCard and I'm the co-founder of Ethical Partners Funds Management. Now today's episode is unlike any other we've ever hosted and covers a very important series of topics relevant to everyone. No matter who you are, where you work or where your family works um, or which company you invest in, we're going to talk about the topic of harassment and bullying what these terms actually mean using workplace type scenarios to illustrate. We'll also demonstrate typical examples of unintentional harassment and how this can be inappropriate and could uh, create a hostile environment for other staff. We're going to discuss the issue of inappropriate behaviour of clients and where this fits into legislation. We'll look at skills and strategies to deal effectively with this type of issue and discuss the issue of harassment and bullying outside the actual workplace, but still defined as a work-related event. So how is this relevant to good investing? Well, I'm glad you asked. Human rights forms an important part of the Ethical Partners Opportunity and Risk Assessment, or EPORA. One important aspect of this is, of course, how staff and clients are treated in the workplace. It's a basic human right, in our view, to be treated properly and appropriately by your employer, other employees, and your clients. And this goes to culture, staff wellbeing, staff turnover, productivity, and ultimately performance. And this has been never more relevant than it is today. You might recall in February this year, Rio Tinto released its Everyday Respect Report, which found that bullying was systemic across Rio Tinto worksites. This is a public report available on their website. Employees described expectations that they should toughen up for life in a global miner. And the report indicated an overall prevalence rate for bullying experiences of 48%. The report also found a prevalence amongst women of sexual harassment of 28%. The 28%, they're staggering stats. Another example comes to mind were the allegations made against the former CleanAway CEO um, that he bullied and harassed a number of senior staff at the company. This is as per many press reports at the time. And at the centre of this issue was clearly a difference in opinion between those that complained, some via whistleblowing services, and the CEO and the board in some cases as to whether the behaviour was actually bullying or harassment or whether it was just the way the CEO managed the company. The CEO has since left CleanAway. Now, this leads nicely to our guest on today's podcast, Mr. Brent Sanders, who's going to help us understand, amongst other things, what behaviour constitutes bullying and harassment. Thank you for your patience, Brent, through my rather long introduction. How are you? And uh, good to see you again. And thanks for taking the time. Matt, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Now, you've been speaking on this topic to Australian corporate schools, universities and community groups for almost 30 years. I'd be interested just to kick off, how has the nature of those discussions and types of questions you've got changed over that time? Matt, that's a, that's a great question. And, and, and it, I guess in some regards, 
it's it, everything changes, everything stays the same. You know, when I when I was first asked to go into a corporate environment to do this, it was one of the four major banks who got me in. The head of HR had 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 read a book that I had had published on um, sexual crime profiling of sexual offenders you know, due to my background in the police and that type of thing. And that organisation brought me in to address um, sexual harassment within their workplace. In fact, the the, 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 the the session was called Prevention of Sexual Harassment. The talks were done gender specifically. I delivered talks to female staff and talks to male staff. And, and that's how we rolled those sessions out for quite some years. Having done that for a while and, and other, other organisations followed suit, I found that the, the companies were then saying, goodness me, look, I think we've, I think we've done the sexual harassment thing to death. We're all, we all know it. We know it inside out, back to front. Maybe we can sort of focus on something else. And as time progressed, we started to focus on other areas. Bullying was an interesting one. Yeah, we only got a federal definition of workplace bullying in the Australian workplace, January 2014. So that opened a whole other discussion within workplaces. What is this thing, bullying? How is it different to harassment? Isn't it sort of just the same thing? It's really interesting now when I look at all the clients that I have now, Matt, every one of them without exception asks me to put specific emphasis around sexual harassment, what it is, uh, what constitutes harassment, even as far and so far as when can sexual harassment transition to be a criminal offence? So, what's been interesting for me in, in in the decades, several decades that I've done this, is we're almost in some regards, with regards to corporate training, we're almost back to where we were twenty odd years ago, back addressing these issues that stubbornly just don't seem to want to go away. Look, I, I would say that there is absolutely no doubt that we have across the board reduced the amount and degree of inappropriate workplace culture in the last 20 to 30 years. A lot of awareness, a lot of training, you know, legislative changes. But as we've reduced that, stubbornly, there are certain forms of inappropriate conduct that still sit at the top of that pile that just seem to not want to budge. And sadly, sexual harassment is one of them. So that's one of the topics amongst others that I address when I when I go into corporations around Australia. Great. That, that's that's great background. Actually, let me tell listeners a little bit more about yourself for those mm. who haven't uh, haven't heard of you. Um, and don't be embarrassed. You're right here. I sometimes do the introduction with people who aren't here, but you are here, so don't get too <laughs> embarrassed. Um, look, you are, you are without doubt one of Australia's most respected communicators in this field. Um, and you also present lectures throughout Australia on sexual crime profiling and personal safety in many schools and universities. In fact, you've connected with, um, I think, 900,000 is the last count if your website's up yes, to date. Yes, you know, it's, it's going to be tipping the million mark at the end of this year, but I feel quite maybe odd this podcast, Maybe this podcast will take you to the million, <laughs> well, well from 900,000 to a million. It may well do. <laughs> it's a, it's, yeah, it's an interesting figure, that one, isn't it? Yes. Uh, now, now you, you obviously spent a very long period of time, a distinguished career in the police force, and um, then you started your own business presenting seminars and lectures on workplace harassment, conflict resolution, and offender psychology. Um, relevant to um, many on this podcast in the corporate field, um, over the last few years, um, Brent's presented to many companies um, and of diverse range as well. So um, the big banks, QBE, um, Grain Corp, Canon, Mervac, the ATO, ING, Stockland, Centrelink, ANZ, NAB, um, as we mentioned, Caltex, the Australian Rugby Union, um, and uh, and many others. And look, I think for me, 
besides your unique background and the amount of people you've communicated with, your communication style um, is uh, is very, very effective um, for sometimes a very delicate topic mm. or, or almost always a very delicate topic. So, um, you know, I think that's uh, that, that's a great way to um, to get messages across. Right. Where do you want to start? Well, look, and, and thank you so much for that, Matt. That's very humbling, a very, a very, uh, very humbling experience to be sitting here as I go through the introduction. And you know, um, the, the, I guess the style that I've that I've adapted over time to do this is is very specifically designed to try and bring subject matter, which yes, it, it, it can be delicate, but it, it's probably more commonly described as a bit dry and boring. To be fair, you know, when I go into an organisation, I was up in Brisbane yesterday, and they brought fifty staff, and you could just sense that none of them really wanted to be there. It's like, oh goodness, here we go, an hour and a half, two hours out of our day on harassment and bullying. So I look at that and I think, well, okay, my job is to try and exceed their exceedingly low expectation that they bring into the room. So I try to bring uh, their policies and, and key points around it to life. I, d- I don't use any PowerPoint presentation, Matt, nothing. It's just me up front. I try to present in an analogy-based context as opposed to a heavy legislative-based context. And I find most people respond very well to sort of hearing stories that can relate to themselves or loved ones or colleagues, and also through those stories and, and through those discussions, just weaving through the policies, the definitions. And I, I find that's a better way to impart the knowledge than with a laser pointer at a, at a PowerPoint presentation. So it's sort of about bringing that to life. So, you know, when I, when I go into an organization, um, I tell you where I start, um, where I, where I start, Matt, as I, as I say to them, you know, every, company in Australia, by law, basically, once they reach a certain size, has to have policies pertaining to harassment, bullying, and that type of thing. The bigger the organisation, the bigger the policies are, big multinationals and what have you. But at the end of the day, they all basically say the same thing because you, you can't create your own definition of harassment or your own definition of bullying. So what I what I focus on is I peel the onion on that a little, and I'll and I'll start by saying, you know, the reason that the Australian workplace not only has policies pertaining to inappropriate conduct, but we also have obligations on the part of individuals, management, corporations to adhere to those policies and to ensure that they're accessible and what have you. The reason for that, in my in my humble view, Matt, is there are three key, I guess basic human tenets, if you will, that sit in behind that. And this is sort of how I start my talk. I'll say every single one of us in this room, every one of us in this organization is 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 entitled to be offended. And it sounds a bit twee and it's a bit like, oh, well, you're sort of stating the obvious. But I say, I just want you to think about that for a moment because whether, whether you have been in an organization for two weeks, two months, 20 years, whether you're the head of the senior leadership team or you're a graduate from university, Nobody's entitlement to be offended is any more or any less than anybody else's. And we all cling on to this. Never, never met a person yet at the Australian workplace who would disagree with that. Then the next step is to say, if we accept that, we must accept that in diverse workplace environments, conduct and behavior that some people may be quite okay with can conversely be conduct and behavior that others are actually quite genuinely up uncomfortable or upset by. And the example I gave, I was in Brisbane yesterday, is I could be in an open plan office environment, you know, conducting myself in a way that I'm quite okay with, a bit of humour, some jokes, a bit of language, whatever the case may be. The person sitting to my right could be totally okay with that. The person sitting to my left 
could find aspects of my conduct genuinely very confronting, very humiliating. That could be culturally based, could be anything at all. So conduct and behavior that some people are okay with can be conduct and behavior that others, it's a real issue for them. The next thing I say is if we accept that, we've got to accept that if you are subjected to conduct or behavior, which is confronting or upsetting, you're entitled to raise it. That's what we do. You know, it's, if I said something that can, you know, confronted you, Matt, you'd be thinking, well, I need to have a chat to Brent about that. Or, or perhaps I might go to a manager and have a chat about that. So raising issues of concern is, is not unreasonable. My final point would be if we're accepting that we're entitled to be offended, we're entitled to raise it. If you or I or a loved one raises an issue of concern in the Australian workplace, it is not unreasonable to have an expectation that what we raise will be listened to, respected. It'll be seen from our perspective, and whenever possible, the issue or the matter that's caused the concern will be will be resolved. So that's sort of where I start, and then we roll out this sort of discussion around you know this thing that we call the workplace. I tell you, mate, Matt, it's funny. Um, I've done a lot of um, virtual presentations through COVID. Uh, I, in fact, I did one this afternoon for an organisation. And when you do virtual presentations and you can have 100, 200 people online, um, many of them during COVID, of course, are sitting there in their kitchen table or the dining room or the spare room if they're lucky enough in their onesies and their tracky dacks and T-shirts. And and one of the things that that sort of brought to the, to the forefront of discussion was this thing that we call the workplace has sort of changed a bit, you know, and, and COVID was responsible for that in many regards. And people start saying to me, you know, all these policies that you have at work that sort of deal with inappropriate conduct behavior, do, do, do they flow to the workplace, to home? And, and if so, how does that, how does that work? And it sort of has it opened up this discussion that this term, the workplace is actually far broader than what we think. For me, when I use that term in my chats, I, I, I'm, I'm talking to folks about the workplace being an environment where you are entitled to protection from inappropriate conduct and equally you're entitled to raise it. And I, I use the, 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 the sort of this umbrella analogy. When you step into your workplace, this umbrella opens up above you, umbrella of protection, if you will, made up of, you know, harassment, bullying policy, anti-discrimination legislation, workplace health and safety. And it's a fairly robust umbrella and, and it's there to protect you and I and everybody from behavior that confronts us. When behavior gets in underneath that umbrella, what that umbrella also enables us to do is, is raise those grievances through a process which is in place in, in, in the Australian workplace. Um, that umbrella is present in any workplace environment. And then, then I start to walk through how broad that is. The workplace is where you work. Of course it is. You know, Matt, on um, Monday last week, I was working with a new client. Um, and it was over in North Sydney and they're an organization which look after a lot of the, um, uh, state transport over that way. And they have eight, 900 bus drivers. And I was up in their boardroom and I was talking to the senior leaders. And as we were sitting there, we were talking about the workplace. And as I was chatting, all these buses were driving out of the depot. And it was a really nice little analogy. And I said, you know, the workplace for you folks that come into a depot or an office is quite geographic. You come in, you do your work and you leave. But look at these folks out here. They're employed by the same organization. They come into the same policy. What's their workplace? That chap's just driven his bus out of the depot and he's off. So it makes us think, well, okay, what, how far does this umbrella go with us? The workplace is where we work. We all know that. But the workplace, in fact, extends to anywhere we are in the course of our work. 
the workplace extends to anybody we have dealings with through the course of our work. You mentioned, Matt, during your introduction, I often talk about inappropriate conduct and behavior directed to a person, not from a colleague, but it could be from a client, from a client company. We come back to legislation. It's actually very clear on this. Policies in the Australian workplace that pertain to harassment, bullying, discrimination actually apply equally equally to the behaviour and conduct of customers, of, of, of clients, contractors, as, as well as colleagues. So analogy that I used to use many years ago was, you know, if I, if I walked into the, a branch of Commonwealth Bank here in George Street, I don't work for Commonwealth Bank, but when I walk into their branch as a customer, I come under that umbrella of those who do work there. And if I walk up to, to a teller who's your, your, your wife, your son, your daughter, your niece, cousin, whatever, and I'm abusive, I'm threatening, I'm, I'm, I'm sexist, I'm racist. Well, I have, I have brought that conduct into their workplace. They're entitled to be offended by that. They're entitled to raise that through a manager and they're entitled to an expectation that even though that conduct originates not from a colleague but from a customer, it's actually going to be addressed and worked with. And this actually comes as a bit of a surprise to to to, to folks that, oh, okay, so I thought workplace harassment had to happen in the office and had to between two people who work for the same entity. No. In fact, interestingly, um, Matt, a lot, a lot of organisations that I work with coincide with organisations that take very seriously their role in providing a harmonious workplace environment for their staff. One thing I've found of late with senior leaders in those environments is an observation that because we've worked so hard on, on, on working on our culture within our organisation, we're finding, they'll often say, that quite a high percentage of grievances and complaints which are raised about inappropriate conduct occur outside of the office and it originates with customers or clients. And so what this has done is it has made those senior leaders sort of look at that and go, okay, we need to ensure that we offer our staff these same protections, the same understanding of grievance and what have you for their dealings outside of the office as well as within the confines of the office environment. So, so, so how do you do that? Because if you're a senior management team and you have your office, mm. that, that's, that's challenging and, yeah. and you should need to get that right. But yeah. where where your staff are going out and mm. dealing with multiple clients. Yeah. What are the types of things a senior management team can do? One of the things one of the things I say to managers is, and you know, we break senior management down into management teams and then pods within those management teams. And and one example I give is, you know, if I'm a manager and I send a staff member off to say a, a client function as an example. Could be a client lunch over the bridge with a client company that we do a lot of work with. Um I need to understand that I that, that staff member, although they're leaving the office, is is leaving the office in the course of their work. So they the umbrella of protection goes with them. As important is making sure that staff member knows that, yes? So that if that staff member is, for example, at that client lunch and they're subjected to inappropriate, upsetting, confronting behaviour from, let's say, an employee of a client company, I want my staff member to know that they don't have to tolerate that any more than what they would back here in the in the office. I want my staff member, if, if they feel aggrieved and uncomfortable, to come back and let me know. Now, I need to know that that's happening to be able to do something about it. Um, oftentimes, respectfully, uh, I have staff who raise these things in my talks who have gone to managers about these type of things. And the manager's a lovely person, you know, with good intent, but their definition of the workplace is a little narrow. And staff will often hear, oh, goodness, well, it didn't actually happen at work, did it? And the person who 
was sexist or abusive. They're not one of ours. So look, if it did happen here and it was one of ours, I, I, I'd sort it out. But really, my hands are tied. I, I, I put that out there as an example, and I say, you know, the correct process there would be for me as a manager to recognise that my staff member has come back to me to raise a grievance or concern which occurred in the course of their work with somebody that we have a workplace relationship with. The correct procedure there would be for me to recognise, firstly, this is a breach of our policies and codes of conduct. Secondly, my responsibility with not only this staff member, but the prospect that I'm going to actually have other staff members in the future having interaction with this company. So we need to address this. And the, the way that it would be best addressed would be for me to speak perhaps with one of my HR team or one of my senior leaders and for one or two of us to go across to the client company and have this discussion. And in 2023, most reputable companies, in my experience, actually want to hear if one of their employees has behaved appallingly and led to an issue with a client. Yes? Companies that, that don't want to hear about that or action it, well, I don't know if there's much hope. I don't know if we can do much with them. So I would go across and have that chat and say, hey, look, you know, we, we, we sent one of our staff to a, a client function. Uh, sadly, one of your team, and this is who it was, conducted themselves appallingly. A staff member came back, raised his grievance. We'd, we, we'd very much like you to look into that for us and, and, and also keep these channels of communication up and let us know what's going to happen as a result of this. And, and also, Matt, very importantly, um, what sort of assurances can you give us that we won't be having this discussion again in the future? Because in my diary on Thursday week, I'm sending three staff members across to work with you, and I am not comfortable doing that unless you can give me an assurance that this is something that we want. So it's, it's, it's having that. But all of this comes back to two things. The manager recognizing that this was a workplace issue and the staff member recognizing it, otherwise they're not going to raise it. They're not going to bring it up. And then, of course, Matt, this brings us to the rather curly um, question around, well, okay, what if, what, if, what if staff just go out for a couple of drinks after work? Surely, surely there is a point where the umbrella, if you will, stays behind. Um, of course, of course, there can be, but socialising with those whom you work with is an extension of the workplace. In fact, anyone who works in the field that I work in, I think, would agree that quite an unhealthy percentage of inappropriate workplace conduct actually occurs and is raised as a result of social interaction. Not a coincidence, Matt, that some of the largest companies I work in, their heads of HR will tell you off record through through somewhat gritted teeth, <laughs> last year, this year, next year, early November, mid-December, that's when we see our big spikes. That's when we see our 10, 15, 20% increases in, in complaints. Why? Christmas functions, more staff socialising, adding alcohol to the equation. Also, as important in my view, is perhaps with those behaving inappropriately in ignorance to the fact that this is actually a workplace environment. And, and the test there is, Socialising is fine. There's absolutely no problem with colleagues socialising. Goodness me, you know, people meet life partners and life friendships through work. Nothing wrong with that at all. The issue, Matt, is this. If, if, if I go out with a group of my colleagues on a Thursday night to celebrate a colleague's birthday or birth of a child or whatever the case may be, and my idea of a really fun night with my colleagues is to drink a little too much and start to conduct myself in a way which is totally totally you know, inappropriate. Having colleagues leaving, having colleagues embarrassed, having colleagues upset because of my sexist, racist or whatever comments. Well, they've got to work with me the next day. 
they've got to walk back into our place of employment. And so the test we have there is to determine whether this is work-related or not, who's involved, who are complainants, who are they complaining about, do they share a workplace relationship? And if they do, it comes under our umbrella. What is the nature of the behaviour which has led to the grievances? Is it in breach of our codes of conduct? And a really good question for managers here too, Matt, would be, is it reasonable to assume that the impact of this conduct and behaviour that occurred socially has the capacity to flow back into our workplace? And this gives real clarity around that. Um, and, and for mine, when I'm talking about that, if I can give people, staff, managers, senior leaders, very clear but concise tests that they can run through, it makes the grey a little more black and white, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, I think those real-life examples um, are the key, mm. really. Oh, people can imagine themselves in those yeah. situations regularly. Yeah. I mean, many, many people you and I, Matt, probably included, can, can recall being at social functions, looking across at someone who we work with who's behaving appallingly. We can see the impact that it's having on colleagues. Of course, this is work-related. It can't not be because it's going to flow back into that workplace. Yes. Is there an obligation on, on employees if they see something inappropriate to report it? Well, where, 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 yeah, where do you place Yeah, that's a great those? question, Matt. It, it, it's there's a, you know, I would say this, it's very dependent on where you sit within the organisation as to how high that obligation goes. I would say everybody has a moral and ethical ob obligation to call out inappropriate behaviour. Goodness me, you know, if if, if you or I are at, at Cole's supermarket and, and the chap in front of us is being abusive and yelling and screaming at the young girl that's at the checkout, legally I don't have to get involved, but I'd think that morally and ethically I'd feel that the right thing to do would be to tap that chap on the shoulder and just highlight to him that he's not a particularly nice human being. But I'm not doing that because of a legal obligation. Perhaps I'm doing it as a moral ethical obligation. When we look at staff observing inappropriate behaviour, I really, really encourage, and a lot of companies do with you know their um, bystander policies and things, to call that out. Now, some may not be comfortable calling out the person you know behaving agree you know inappropriately. I get that, but at least go to somebody, a manager or somebody who has leverage to to address it and deal with it. If the question is, what if we're out socialising and I'm a manager and I'm out with staff and I observe behaviour which under any reasonable test is inappropriate, not only is do I have a moral and ethical obligation to take action, I actually have a legal obligation because once you're in that management leadership role, um, we've got this issue of vicarious liability, you know, with regards to observing or being informed of conduct that we know is inappropriate, we know is in breach of our policies and choosing not to act, which therefore condones the behaviour, makes it worse. So individuals, staff members, yes, morally, ethically, Without any doubt, you you know, my advice would be to call it out. Managers, it's not just morally and ethically the right thing to do, but you actually have a legal obligation within a workplace structure. Yeah. We've covered off, I guess, the, the circumstances and 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 a basic framework and structure which which I actually find simple but interesting and yes. easy to understand. Mm. Um, where to next? Where, where then do you lead your groups? One thing that comes up here too, often a question, Matt, that often comes up around about now in a chat will be, what about social media? Now, you know, social media, here we are, 
um, putting a podcast together, which I guess loosely comes under the the, 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 the umbrella of social media. Social media, the, 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 the genie's out of the bottle. It's not going anywhere. And although most company policies were created long before social media was, was a, a thought bubble for anybody, what I'm finding is there are examples where perhaps individuals or staff or colleagues will use social media as a platform to say things to or about somebody that they have a workplace relationship with, which is offensive, upsetting, and things such as that. Most most medium to large size organizations I work in will now have something included in their policy that pertains to um, misuse of social media, uh, which intimidates, offends, or humiliates, will be seen as a breach of our code of conduct and looked into. What I'm finding too matters, and and you know we we don't need to go down this rabbit hole too far, but some of the larger organizations are even very have very strongly worded guidelines around passive postings on social media where for example if i'm an employee of a well-known organization and on linkedin or on facebook i post something which is quite inappropriate racist sexist anti-semitic homophobic and i can be identified or or i am identified as an employee of that organization we're finding that organizations are taking very strong action there even though that wasn't sent to somebody with any intent to offend the person who posted it can be identified as a member of our organization therefore that is extremely damaging to our brand to to what we're about so we're seeing social media encroach into this more and more um has that been tested legally, just out of interest? Yeah, uh, Israel Folau. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, yeah. The Israel Folau case was an interesting one in so much as we had two protected attributes. Now, that protected attribute, of course, as we know, is, is what makes up anti-discrimination legislation. So protected attribute is things like gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, disability, all the things that, that, that we know that you cannot be discriminated against for employment, education, provisional goods or services – Harassment, by definition, in the workplace is actually behavior which offends on the basis of one of those protected attributes. The Israel Folau case was, was all emotion aside, it was unique from a legal perspective because we, we, we had two protected attributes colliding. Um, religion is a protected attribute, as is sexual orientation. And we had a person there, an employee of a large organization, a very well-known employee, making public comments or statements through social media, through Twitter, which related to his religious beliefs, which he is quite entitled to, but the statements that he made put him in breach of policy pertaining to um, vilification of those due to sexual orientation. So it created quite an interesting legal environment. One side of the fence saying he's quite entitled to say that due to his religious beliefs. The other side saying he's entitled to those beliefs, but if he articulates them in a way which is offensive. And, and so that led to a very ugly arm wrestle. It led to sponsors threatening to pull out and, and it led to lots of inappropriate or a lot, lot, lots of uh, negative press for both the individual involved and, and the employer. So that's probably our highest profile one. But I can tell you um, a lot of organizations that I've gone into over the years have had to deal with those things, but we don't see it on the front page of the paper because those involved aren't as high profile. Yeah. No, very interesting. So, so you just touched on then the link between um, harassment and discrimination. Yeah, it's um, interesting, Matt. Just it? tie yeah. that together for us a bit. Certainly, um, workplace harassment is a term that we're all familiar with. Um, I, I was actually I was in Canberra a week or so back, and I had a chat 
um, I got into the training room. He was already there, which is quite unusual, Matt, for people coming to my talks. <laughs> they, they're usually sort of forced in through the door. Plus, he was sitting in the front row, which is almost unheard of. I always, I think I could put $10 on each of the front row seats and nobody would grab it. But um, he was there bright and early, very excited. And, and he said, goodness, he said, I'm very looking forward to this. And I thought, oh, that's, that's fantastic. I said, you know, what, what's, where's your interest? He said, oh, I just sort of have an interest in law and civil law and things. And he said, look, he said, I actually printed up the company policy on harassment and bullying last night and took it home to have a read of it. And I'm thinking, goodness, you know, you perhaps need a hobby. <laughs> that's, but that's great. I, and, and he said, I said, oh, how did you find that? He said, look, I, I've got to be honest. He said, I, I hit a bit of a stumbling block. I said, I, I, he said, I read the company's definition of workplace harassment. I read through that. It's all very thorough. I turned the page and the company's definition of workplace bullying was on the next page. And he said, as I read each one, I kept flicking the page, going back and forth. For the life of me, I, 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 I couldn't see any difference in the two. And he said, it had me questioning, is bullying simply a, a, a hybrid term for harassment? Is it, is it different? If so, in what way? And do we really need them both alongside each other? So in a nutshell, harassment, workplace harassment is a hybrid term that came out of anti-discrimination legislation. So if we look at New South Wales, 1977, anti-discrimination legislation was was created in New South Wales. And it's made up of, as I alluded to before, protected attributes, um, where there is a history of people with those attributes perhaps being treated differently or unfairly. So we now have this protection. Harassment is a term that we use to describe behaviour in a workplace setting that say I direct towards a colleague, which they deem to be uninvited, unwelcomed, and they are genuinely upset by it. And that offense that they that they experience is linked to a protected attribute under anti-discrimination law. So when we talk about the term workplace harassment, it originates in anti-discriminatory legislation. So it goes back in there via definition. So it's things like comments in a workplace which uh, people find offensive of, of a sexist nature, of, of a racial nature, of, of a homophobic nature, um, of you know comments about a person's disability, about their age, these type of things. And once you, once you get to that point of having that discussion in one of my sessions, oftentimes folks will say, well, okay, hang on, hang on. What if, what if hypothetically I have the misfortune of working with somebody in a workplace who, for whatever reason, glean some personal enjoyment out of being maybe aggressive or threatening or intimidating to others, making other people feel very uncomfortable. What if that's happening, but none of that behavior or conduct has any link to gender, race, religion? So it's not harassment. Well, what's that? That's bullying. That's workplace bullying. So there's our distinction. Workplace harassment is a term that pertains to conduct or behavior that offends on the basis of a protected attribute. Workplace bullying sits alongside that in a workplace policy to enable us to have leverage to deal with all other forms of inappropriate conduct and behavior. You know, Matt, we only got a workplace bullying definition in the Australian workplace in January 2014. Up until then, to be fair, no matter what the workplace indiscretion was, it would be labelled by HR as harassment, even though legally the definition never went that far. And I spoke over that time 
to, to many heads of legal departments of large organisations who were a little nervous about the propensity of some organisations perhaps to terminate employment for very poor conduct and behaviour, but at the top of the termination papers is the term workplace harassment, where in fact perhaps a half-decent industrial lawyer would go, well, hang on, this behaviour was totally inappropriate and this is not a nice person, but it's not it's not harassment. So we now, and you know, Matt, be it right or wrong, the workplace has become more litigious over time. So now every workplace in Australia will show staff the definition of harassment, the definition of bullying. Can I say this, Matt? For the people on the receiving end of that behaviour, there's no difference. There's no difference. You know, I, I often say in my talks, if the left-hand side of the room has been subjected to harassment, the right-hand side to bullying, if you chat to each other, you'll discover very quickly it doesn't feel any different. The difference is legislative. Harassment is policed under anti-discrimination legislation. Bullying is actually a breach of work health and safety legislation. And the definition of bullying is repeated and unreasonable behaviour directed towards an individual or group of people in a workplace environment that creates a risk to the workers' workplace health and safety. So that's that's how it's policed. So, you know, the distinction between harassment and bullying, harassment, um, discriminatory-based comments and behaviour, if we look at policies on bullying, we'll get some examples of things like bullying would be verbal abuse, threats, name calling, yelling or screaming at a person, use of offensive language, repeated teasing, practical jokes. So these are the things that we'll see in most workplace policy. Interesting too, Matt, this often promotes a little bit of chat, excluding or isolating individuals in a workplace, form of bullying. Oh, so it's like a negative form of... Yeah, yeah. And it's a really interesting one that how often that comes up when folks come up to me after a talk. So what are some examples? Yeah, I, I had one recently where a chap said to me, he said, you know, I never considered what happens to me and my team to be bullying because firstly, I'd never been told what the definition was. And secondly, I always thought of bullying as being that overt behaviour, yelling, screaming, threatening, intimidating, which of course it is. But if we look at the definition, repeated unreasonable behaviour creating risk to a person's workplace health and safety, repeated exclusion and isolation is, is if you like, a covert means to achieve that same goal. And, and this chap, actually, the reason I remember him, he, he, he labelled it beautifully. He said, it's like death by a thousand cuts. He said, I'm in a team where the little alpha group in that team have made it very clear they don't want me there, they want one of their friends in there. It's got nothing to do with my work performance, nothing. It's just they're not particularly nice people. They don't speak to me. They don't communicate with me. I'm not included in anything. Th simple things like the coffee run, I'm never asked. Never included in any invitations to a social drink after work. I walk into the lunchroom, they get up and walk out. And he says, it's just this constant ongoing reminder that I'm not welcome. And I said, how does that make you feel? And this was a chap who was actually older than me. And he said, I, I, I've never felt so embarrassed, so ashamed, so so belittled ever in my life. He said, and you know, today when you just included in your definition exclusion and isolation, this light bulb went off. He said, that's what they're doing. And he said, it's funny, isn't it, that, you know, it makes me feel awful, it makes me feel humiliated, but I could never connect what they did, how I felt, with with anything tangible. 
And now that he could, of course, if he chooses to, he can start to take steps to raise it and have it have it dealt with. And it gets back, Matt, to to the value that I see in people, and they're entitled to it, to being able to look at behaviour or experience behaviour directed to them and say, this makes me uncomfortable and I don't like that and I know I'm uncomfortable because this is harassment because I know what it is. This is bullying. Yes. And also, of course, within the groups that I speak to, maybe, maybe one or two are walking out going, goodness, based on those definitions, I need to be cautious because my behaviour and conduct could probably be described as that. Mm. Yeah. So knowledge is power, isn't it, in these in these oh, it certainly is. So yeah. Just just looking at your definition there. So repeated. So yeah. so so yeah. someone yelling at someone else inappropriately once, yeah. It, that's not bullying, but it's just bad behaviour. Like, yeah, how you do know, you, how do you that's such a great that's that's very analytical of you, Matt, to pull that up. It's and it's a really it's a really valid point. I'm gonna say this. I can't speak on behalf of the legislators who came up with the definition of bullying, but I think when they look back at it, they will probably regret putting the word repeated in there, to be quite honest. Harassment is not burdened with that word. Nowhere yeah. in the definition of harassment is the word repeated. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that because yeah. you, you can you can be uh, sexually harass someone once, once, yeah. and it's yeah, sexual yeah, yeah. harassment. And 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 you can if I if I say if I make one sexist, racist, homophobic comment, well, no, it's not as bad as seven, but it's it's still bad, <laughs> and maybe we need to address it because if it's not addressed, guess what? One becomes seven very quickly. Bullying is burdened a little with that word, and the reason the word is there, I would suggest, is because it links the behaviour, which is repeated and unreasonable, to the increased risk to the recipient, to their workplace health and safety. What's interesting about this is if, you know, over the years I've chatted to many, many heads of HR and companies, and they'll tell you almost without exception, when people do raise issues of harassment, it is usually always repeated. So even though under legislation it doesn't have to be, it nearly always is. It's sort of semantics a little. And you're right, technically speaking, if I am abusive towards a colleague once and there's no connection to a protected attribute, therefore it's not harassment and it's only happened once, so therefore it's not repeated, it's not bullying, technically I've fallen through the legislative cracks there. But it's still going to be behaviour that needs to be addressed. And I would say almost without exception. By the time somebody speaks out, it probably has happened more than once. So I think it's a regrettable term, you know, that's, uh, that we found that we found in there. Yes. So, so, so it's, it's simply inappropriate behaviour that doesn't necessarily fall within a niche category. It's still inappropriate. Man yes. Management should still act. 100%. Um, changes 100%. may still be made and discipline reactions still yes. can occur. And, and it could be something as simple as, um, in, in, you know, if, if the one-off incident was of a high enough level, uh, we could be talking a first and final warning to that individual. If this happens one more time, this is then repeated following this warning that will be, you, you'll no longer be here with us. So action, of course, can always be taken. Yes. What about the formal penalties? Just, mm. just trying to understand that now really, well, Really, it doesn't go this far, of course, and there's yes. so many instances day-to-day -day in workplaces around Australia. Yes. Um, but just if it does go further, the difference between civil and criminal penalties, the mm. difference between um, penalties under safe work, yes. other legislation, yes. how should listeners think about that yeah. area generally? It's, it's a really good question, Matt, and, and, and to sort of abbreviate what is a very 
a very good and very broad question. We will we'll have situations always where, you know, um, an organisation could be held liable for failing to deal effectively with inappropriate conduct and behaviour. And we'll see those through the media. You know, we, we, we see those cases, high profile cases, front page of the Sydney Morning Herald, the Fin Review or whatever, where an organisation has been taken to task by an individual for failing to protect them from inappropriate workplace conduct. One that goes back a while will probably, you know, show your age and mine, of course, would be the David Jones case, which was one of the highest profile cases of, if you like, institutional vicarious liability taken by one young 26-year-old female employee who made seven or eight formal complaints about the CEO. Each of the complaints were ended up in the bin. Nothing was done. She left the organisation and retrospectively took action against them for failing to protect her from ongoing. So what we see there is an organisation held liable. You know, interestingly, and again, we don't have to go too far down this rabbit hole, um, companies have always been under the microscope for how they deal with complaint processes, investigations, and how they deal with substantiated findings of inappropriate conduct. Some subtle changes to, you know, workplace health and safety, respect at work legislation as of the end of last year, that's still there, but there's also now a proactive requirement on Australian businesses to show that they have taken steps to prevent incidents from occurring, such as training, up-to-date policies, access to policies and things such as that. And this has, interestingly, as of January this year, in my small little world, led to a large increase of corporations contacting me who haven't perhaps done much in the way of training in the past, who due to that legislative tweak are going, goodness, we, 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 you know, we need to address that. So that very small change has led to quite a large increase in awareness. For an individual who behaves outside of company policy, of course, they can be dealt with through um, a formal warning, informal warning, a first and final warning, relocation, right up to, of course, termination of employment. Um, managers in this process can be found, the term that we generally use around this is like vicarious liability. I alluded to this before. If I manage a team, I'm aware of inappropriate behaviour, it's presented to me or I observe it, I choose to not deal with it. If that grievance, that complaint goes above me or outside to an external group and they come in or an investigation is done and the behaviours are such that let's say the person exhibiting it is, is showing the door, as a manager who was aware of it under vicarious liability, I can also lose my position within the organisation. That's something I actually see quite a bit of, Matt. Um, in action leading to companies saying, you know, we have really good policies, we we do what we can, but this individual manager chose to walk to the beat of their own drum and not adhere to them. And we agree that that contributed to the impact on the individual. So that manager is no longer, no longer with us. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, if I, if I'm a licensee of a pub in the rocks and I'm up here having a chat to you and my bar staff are serving underage drinkers and the licensing police come in, I get done for that. It's vicariously liable. So we do have that here. And, and as you rightly say, you know, Fair Work, Fair Work Commission, what have you, can come into organisations following findings and direct them to change or implement different policies and things. And the big thing I think, Matt, is, you know, I always see an uptick 
in large corporations bringing people like me in to do work with them after high profile cases get into the media. PricewaterhouseCooper had their time in the sun. David Jones had their time in the sun. And it's sort of this like reminder, I guess, to senior executives, goodness, how would we stack up if that, if we were there, if we were the next David Jones, how would we look? You know, and do we want to be on the front page of that paper? So, um, I'm not saying for one moment that it's all motivated through fear of the brand and things such as that, but it plays a, it plays a part. You know, the days of allowing somebody to stay in an organization who's a really nasty, awful human being, but they can treat people and do whatever they like because of the bottom end that they bring in. Th th those days are, are, are almost gone mm. because an organization that makes a decision based on purely fiscal loss or benefit with regards to a person's behavior will soon discover that there is a greater fiscal risk to them holding on to that individual than releasing them. So we've even now got those organizations, and there's not many of them, realizing that it's better off to let that individual go than to keep them here. So yeah. Yeah, I think the individual is very frequently overestimated in their ability to influence outcomes. Um, oh, 100%. And yeah, there's no excuse for that kind of behavior, no matter what they're producing. Yes. Um, that's for sure. D does, does this area ever go, well, it will, mm. in what circumstances it go from civil to criminal? Yeah. That's Where's great, that line? That's a great question, Matt. You know, if we look at it, um, if I put the old police hat on for two moments, um, all forms of civil grievances, offenses, if you like, if, if we escalate them far enough, will become criminal. So if we look at bullying, Yes, yelling, screaming, intimidating somebody, bullying. Next day I hit you, that's assault. So we've transitioned from bullying, which is a workplace health and safety issue, to a criminal issue, yes? So all civil, and, and, and in a workplace environment, whether it's um, anti-discrimination legis anti legislation or, or, or workplace health and safety, if we take those incidences to a higher degree, there will be a point where it crosses a, a legal line. One that I talk about quite a bit, you know, sexual harassment, um, still still the number one, yeah, still the number one. Sexual harassment, by definition, is really, it's, it's just workplace harassment with a sexual element. So when I define sexual harassment to clients in, in my talks, I say, you know, sexual harassment is uninvited, unwelcomed, unreciprocated behavior of a sexual nature, which intimidates, offends, or humiliates. That link to anti-discrimination legislation, there's two of them. The person is offended on the basis of gender, which is a protected attribute. But in every state and territory in Australia, we now have standalone sex discrimination legislation, which amongst other things, makes sexually based conduct in the workplace that causes offense a breach of that form of legislation. I'm often asked, is there a point where sexual harassment could by definition become criminal? Yes, yes, there is. And sadly, sadly, I have been involved in no shortage of investigations for small organizations where I've interviewed somebody who is raising a complaint of sexual harassment. And they use that language because the incident occurred within a workplace setting and it was a colleague who did it. But when they explain to me the ingredients, as they're telling me what happened, I'm identifying that what happened is actually criminal, not civil. The crossing point is this. The most common crossing point for sexual harassment is sexual harassment can be verbal stuff. It can be text messaging. It can be comments that are inappropriate. It can be all sorts of things. It can also, of course, be unwanted physical contact. Now, it doesn't have to be male to female. 
most of it is, but it can be female to male, it can be female to female, it can be male to male. But let's say, I'll use myself as an example, let's say I work in an Australian workplace environment and I have this somewhat delusional idea that at age 57, coming in at over 100 kilograms, uh, whenever I get close to a female colleague, uh, it's appropriate to put my arm around their waist or over their shoulder or sort of rub my hand up and down their arm as I give them a document or something such as that. And I use that term delusional quite intentionally because the only people who think that behaviour has any place in the modern Australian workplace are those who do it. <laughs> no one else shares that view. Now, do many people do that? No. But I have those examples crossing my path still way too often. If I put my arm around, it's, it doesn't have to be a female colleague, but by way of illustration, I put my arm around a young female colleague who's about the age of my daughter in her mid-20s as I'm handing her a document. If we freeze that there, let's say that young woman, doesn't have to be a young woman, but this is just an example, labels my behavior as uninvited, unwelcomed, unreciprocated. She hates it. It's awful. I do it all the time. It makes the hair on the back of her neck stand up. I'm the age of her father. She just hates it and she wants me to walk away. You freeze that there. If, 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 if that's not sexual harassment, Matt, I'm a monkey's auntie. That's exactly what it is. It meets all of the criteria. Yes? How could that become a criminal offence. Um, I would say the profile of an individual who deems it's appropriate to make physical contact like that repeatedly in a workplace is not a million miles away from the profile of an individual who perhaps at a social function with that same person after a few drinks may think it's mildly amusing or appropriate to go a little further and that hand drops off the shoulder down to touch the female colleague on the breast or brush against the backside or something such as that. We have now stepped out of civil legislation into criminal. Every state and territory in Australia, I've delivered lectures on sexual crime in all of them, every state and territory in Australia, it is a criminal offence to touch another person to a sexual area without their permission or consent. New South Wales, uh, no, not all your listeners are from New South Wales. New South Wales, we used to call that indecent assault. We now call it unlawful sexual touching. Unlawful sexual touching, as the title describes, is exactly what I've just done. I have touched a colleague to a sexual area, breasts, between legs, backside. That touching can be overclothing underneath, makes no difference. This, this also extends to situations where an individual makes somebody touch them sexually. Now, these can be extensions of conduct that started out as sexual harassment, yes? Unlawful sexual touching in New South Wales carries a five-year imprisonment term for each time it occurs. Without exception, without exception, every time I have had reported to me in the Australian workplace somebody who has been subjected to that conduct and behaviour, they tell me the person who did it has done it multiple times. Each one carries five years. Uh, if your listeners are in Canberra, in Canberra, they call that indecent assault carries seven years for each incident. If you've got listeners listening in from Queensland or Victoria, that's called sexual assault. That's a 10-year maximum imprisonment for each incident. Now, oftentimes, people who are subjected to that, and in the experience of 23 years of doing this in the corporations, that they have all been women that I've had to sadly interview and work with, oftentimes, they, they, they will use, as I said before, the term harassment to describe what is actually a sexual offence. My positioning there matters is I inform them that based on what they're telling me, if they choose to, they have every right to report this to the police as a criminal act. 
Some choose to do that. Others others choose not to, in which case it would be run as the highest level of sexual harassment breach that, that there is. And there is absolutely no way knowing that that person should be in the organization for more than about another 20 minutes once that's been once that's been substantiated and you know for me this is this is not being melodramatic um in any way shape or form you know um i i have spent a big chunk of my working life since leaving the police um delivering seminars to young men and young women in schools and universities on sexual crime uh, i spoke to 240 students at a school in sydney this morning year 10 students half of them were young men half of them were young women and, and I had to tell them that in a statistical breakdown, if we look at this thing called gender risk profiling, the young men sitting in that room in that school hall today, they're high risk age to be targeted by sexual offences at primary school. Mm. By the time they're in year 10, risk to young men is very low. The young woman that was sitting in that hall today, they've just entered the highest risk age group they'll ever be in, 15 to 21. 15 to 21. Between the age of 15 to 21 in Australia, they estimate one in four, one in five young women will have some type of sexual offence committed against her, usually by a guy of similar age who she knows socially, who she thought that she could trust. Yes. Um, I cannot recall in 27 years doing a presentation to young women within that age group without getting disclosures. I've done two schools this week. I would put the figure at a, probably 15 to 20 this week. Two schools. These are both year 10 groups. My point here, Matt, is this. All of these young women and these young men will make their way into the Australian workplace. They're all in the workplace all over Australia. And I don't want to come at this with a, with a big stick, but I'm just saying this, this is partly why I'm so passionate about ensuring that in the Australian workplaces, we just really think hard about our conduct, our behaviour, we, we do what we can to dismantle this, this, this stubborn statistic that tells us that sexual harassment is still number one. And, and we must at, at all lengths avoid this idea, this blase idea that, oh, well, you know, if somebody's a bit offended by a bit of a sexual joke or a bit of a pat here and there, I think they're probably overreacting. Goodness me, come and work with me for a week. He, hear the stuff that I hear. Walk in the shoes of that young woman. And, and, and let's, and let's see how your view changes. So, you know, it's, it's, it's bringing that. And I do bring that with some passion in, into these workplace discussions that I have because we as a society have to accept that we've got to hear about it because then that's the only thing that can lead to change and improvement. It sounds like a really good way to wrap things up. And I know that's how you wrap up your um, formal seminars and certainly when you deliver one to uh, to ethical partners. We've come a long way, but clearly there's, there's still a long way to go. And your experience, um, Brent, both being on the police force, seeing things from one perspective, but then also lecturing to almost a million Australians, I don't think there's anyone better to, I guess, put the whole issue out there for people to think through and improve upon. So I really thank you for your time. And I think you, your messaging out there is making a big difference. We'll continue to make a big difference and we certainly do appreciate it. Matt, thank you so much for having me here, mate. And, and you know, and again, thank you for inviting me. Oh, goodness, last year now, wasn't it? To come in and, and speak to your to your staff and your colleagues here and, and for you to then reach out and, and, and to invite me to sit here to do this. So I, I, I'm very humbled by it and, and, and thanks so much. And, and look, you know, like you say, yeah, most people are good. Most people are decent, but good and decent people are entitled to have this knowledge so that we continue to have leverage against perhaps those who choose to walk to the beat of a somewhat different drum. Thanks Absolutely. 
Thanks, Brent. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au. The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.